This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. With me today is Senior Domestic Policy Advisor at the Heritage Foundation, Dr. Robert Moffitt, to discuss the recently published volume, Modernizing Medicare, Harnessing the Power of Consumer Choice and Market Competition, an essay collection Dr. Moffitt co-edited with Marie Fishpaw. Dr. Moffitt, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you very much for having me. You're very welcome. Uh, Dr. Moffitt's bio is posted, of course, on the podcast website. Briefly on background, U.S. healthcare spending at approximately $4.3 trillion is total. Uh, correct, yes, total is extreme. The U.S. with 4.2% of the world's population accounts for roughly half of total annual global healthcare spending. The single, the single largest payer of U.S. healthcare services is Medicare at approximately $900 billion or 21% of total U.S. healthcare spending. As Angus Deaton, the Nobel Prize economist, and his spouse Ann Case, also a Princeton economist, argued in 2020, U.S. healthcare, quote-unquote, is a uniquely American calamity that is undermining American lives, quote-unquote, and the industry is a cancer at the heart of the economy, they also stated. In this work, Dr. Moffat, along with 11 other contributors, including Joe Antos, Douglas Holtz Eakin, Brian Miller, Mark Pauley, and Gail Walensky, lay out the conservative version of Medicare reform. The authors enthusiastically argue that policymakers, per the book's subtitle, again, harnessing the enormous power of consumer choice and market competition, reinvent Medicare as defined as a defined contribution program termed here premium support, or at least they recommend substantially expanding Medicare Part C or Medicare or the Medicare Advantage program, Medicare coverage offered by private insurance companies. Think, for example, United Healthcare and Humana that account for nearly half of all Medicare Advantage enrollees. With me again to discuss these proposed reforms is Dr. Robert Moffat. So, Bob, with that as introduction, what I thought I would do here, because this is my 290th plus interview, <laughs> I'm going to assume listeners have a reasonably substantive understanding of the Medicare program. So instead of working through each, um, uh, say, recommendation or category of recommendations, I thought we'd have this discussion a little bit differently and allow me to ask you some uh, more generic or fundamental or foundational questions. Sure. Okay, thank you. So let's let's begin. My first question is, uh, through these 10 chapters, and your chapter is uh, the most substantive, but uh, all these 12 authors, including yourself, repeatedly argue for market competition, and here I'm quoting from the book some of these phrases, the superiority of market forces, harnessing the power of market, market competition, inject, injecting a strong dose of consumer choice, liberating market forces, etc. So with, with that a comment echoed throughout the volume. Let me ask you this, and I very infrequently get to ask this question, so I'm very interested. Is health and you know what, I, what I'm getting at here? Is healthcare a market commodity? When, for example, and I'm sure you're aware of all these particulars. When quality cannot be observed, when there is uncertainty about purchasing consequences, 
when price is not a signal of quality, and when patient satisfaction is not typically associated with technical quality. So my question again is, since the book really talks about driving healthcare reform via market competition, and here, of course, I'm referencing uh, Ken Arrow and others' arguments sure. questioning whether we can define healthcare as a market commodity, um, what's your response to this? Well, healthcare itself is a state of being, wellness. Absolutely, uh, yes, yeah. Uh, so the question is, how do we get that? And uh, it's uh, we call the healthcare system or the healthcare economy is really made up of two two components. One is healthcare financing, which comes through either government uh, programs or through private health insurance. The other is healthcare delivery, which is done by providers. Uh, the difficulty is in the current system uh, that ordinary human beings uh, have very little control over this system. Mm-hmm. In other words, most people have no control. In, I'm talking about generally speaking. Right. Most people have no control about the kind of health plans they get, the medical treatments and procedures they get, uh, the kind of relationship they have with a physician, whether that physician is in network, out of network. Um, in many cases, uh, the, 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 the specific kinds of health insurance that they get is determined not by them, uh, but by the company they work for, by uh, the government organization or a managed care corporation um, or, or some other third or fourth party. So all of the key decisions in the system are basically made uh, by uh, these third and fourth parties. Individuals have actually very little direct control over the, the flow of, uh, of dollars in the system. Now, what we have been arguing in the book is, and we're arguing from the standpoint of financing, is that at least at the first basic level, what you need to do is you've got to get control over the the flow of dollars to basically the third-party payer, uh, giving you the opportunity to either pick a player or refuse that player. And if the the player, in this case, uh, you know, an insurance plan, or for that matter, in our view, the actual traditional fee-for-service Medicare program itself does not meet up to your standards with regard to quality or uh, benefit or service, you have the right and should have the right to fire that third-party payer. Uh, We do have limited uh, experience in this area. Medicare Advantage is one. Medicare Part D is another. And, of course, uh, the probably the best model of a competitive health care system right now uh, in, in health insurance is the Federal Employee Health Benefits Program, uh, where people do pick and choose the plans they want. They have a very high level of patient satisfaction. And the degree to which prices are uh, transparent, and as you pointed out earlier, they are not transparent today, but they can be. There's no reason why. We cannot pass legislation to make prices transparent. Uh, When prices are transparent and you have transparency of provider performance, the uh, ability of doctors, hospitals, clinics, and home health agencies uh, to provide quality care, which is is available to you, uh, you know, uh, through quality metrics, which should be publicly available. When we have that kind of transparency of, of price, and we have that kind of transparency of provider performance, uh, that will drive uh, higher quality health care, which means basically better value for money. Okay, thanks. So 
You know, my question essentially was, is it reasonable to assume or expect a consumer, and here we're talking about Medicare beneficiaries, also not as an aside, as you know, approximately a third of Medicare beneficiaries are cognitively impaired, uh, particularly those presumably more likely north of 80. But can can Medicare beneficiaries specifically here make an informed decision? I guess your answer is price transparency and quality reporting certainly would help. Oh, well, absolutely. I mean, we, we have seen cases where price transparency did make a difference. Uh, in the case of uh, the state of Maryland, for example, we have a situation where we have 48, um, 48 acute care hospitals. And uh, the state of Maryland in 2017 imposed a price transparency requirement, uh, which demonstrated uh, basically uh, the dysfunction of hospitals in terms of pricing, where you had uh, the same procedure in the same geographical area between two hospitals, where the differences were $10,000 or more for that same procedure. Uh, what is happening in most of the healthcare system is people haven't got a clue about what healthcare services cost. They haven't got a clue about what the quality of those services are in terms of outcomes. And uh, we can change that. And that one of the ideas behind uh, Medicare modernization, modernizing Medicare, I should say, the book that we published, uh, is to basically make changes that will create that kind of transparency and drive that kind of decision making. Um, it can be done. Uh, we have seen it done, as I say, on a limited basis uh, in the Federal Employee Health Benefits Program. And the success of that program is not questionable. You have very, very high degree of patient satisfaction, and at the same time, you have intense competition. Uh, we need intense competition among insurance companies because, frankly, it is one of the areas of the healthcare sector of the economy where we uh, actually do have a, a problem of oligopoly. With regard to Medicare Advantage, you're quite right. We have, you know, a couple of large health insurance companies that have grabbed a large share of um, the uh, the market, but that doesn't have to be the case. We can open up the market uh, to not only Medicare Advantage plans, but we can open up the uh, market to uh, plans sponsored by trade associations, union, uh, religious or or uh, fraternal organizations, all kinds, as well as employers, all kinds of organizations uh, would be required uh, to offer the same you know, standard benefits, ABC, uh, and also re be required to uh, provide the financial protection from cat uh, catastrophic illness and compete on a level playing field. You would see a, an increase in the supply of different kinds of plans, which I think is a very good idea, uh, which would um, give people a broader range of choice than they have even under Medicare Advantage. Okay, thank you. Relative to competition, I won't. We won't get into this, but you begged the uh, HHI scores, Herfindahl-Hirschhorn index scores, which show that yeah. both the both the provider, particularly hospital and payer market, is highly concentrated uh, yes, throughout the is. country. Um, right. Relative to price variation, so you mentioned Maryland; they have the all payer waiver, uh, unique to this country, evidently uh, demonstrating increased success uh, in maintaining uh, spending growth. I, I will note, uh, I love this quotation by Uwe Reinhardt. I'm sure you're familiar with it. The finest healthcare in the world costs twice as much as the finest healthcare in the world, which is his humorous way of saying there's unbelievable uh, price variation. 
Let's speaking of price, let's go to price. And I will say I looked for this in the volume. Uh, nobody picked it up, but I, I do want to ask you about it. So we're talking about price and quality, and as you know, uh, this is the speaking of Uwe Reinhardt. This was the uh, Jerry Anderson Reinhardt piece twenty years cool. ago this year, right? It's the price is stupid. Um, right. And somebody in the book early on used the phrase "fee for service chassis." You hear that a lot in MedPack uh, discussions. So yeah. uh, we have a pricing problem. But you do the book. The book does discuss to some extent. Um, you know, healthcare has largely become dominated by subspecialties. They, of course, uh, are higher reimbursed. The market's sort of skewed towards them, so that drives prices up. We don't have enough. Uh, we don't prov- uh, provide enough primary care. Obviously, that's more price exactly. efficient. That's true. So, yes. so uh, I'll just leave it open ended. Where's your Where are your colleagues on? And this gets the AMA and the RBRVS and RVUs and the RUC. Where and and you know, uh, there's been a lot of discussion. You, you someone cited Michael uh, Chernow, that speaking of the MedPAC chair, he's written several articles on pricing, the problem of pricing in healthcare. Uh, what would you say about getting the prices right? Well, I think the only way to get a price right is to allow uh, the forces of supply and demand to operate as efficiently as possible. And that can happen when you have consumer decision making in the system, uh, which, as I say, both uh, in terms of plans and also providers, uh, it is sorely lacking. Um, there's only way, really two ways to, to deal with prices. One is to administratively set them, as we do in Medicare, mm-hmm. and that is proving to be uh, unsustainable. If you look at the Medicare trustees report, right. they make the point that the existing hospital pricing and also uh, uh, Medicare Part B pricing for uh, Medicare Part B providers, physicians, now patients, uh, services, and so on, is really not sustainable. Uh, that is to say that uh, over time, uh, the current administrative pricing in Medicare is going to result in a decline in the ability of providers to to, uh, to provide the services under the terms and conditions of the current system, that is to say, on, under current law. So, in fact, um, you know, we know from experience that it doesn't work. Administrative pricing be, may, basically means you're either paying too much uh, for the service, which actually does happen in Medicare, uh, despite what some people think. Uh, some physicians are always complaining. But in fact, we do have cases, uh, as the Government Accountability Office has pointed out, where uh, oftentimes the government will pay too much, but often the government government will pay too little. It's simply because administratively, it's hard to get the right price. The only way we get the right price is to have a collision of the forces of supply and demand on a level playing field. Um, that can start to give us the right price. It will also stimulate, uh, if you're in a competitive market, which is open, it'll, it'll stimulate uh, a desire on the part of those who supply medical goods and services to be able to provide that, uh, those services at, a, at, a, at an affordable price, which maintains uh, their competitive position. Okay, thank you. Since, um, since you mentioned the, the, the key phrase, administrative pricing, I do yeah. want I do want to get to that because this this gets at MA benchmarks, uh, which are based on obviously fee for service spending. I did want to ask yeah. a question about value. There's a lot of the word is used several times. For example, Chapter Three MA has simply been able to offer more value than government experts have forecast. Close quote. 
we don't we don't measure value. You know, this is the Michael Porter point he's been making for for decades. That being yeah. value outcomes achieved relative to spending, and this explains why Michael helped establish the International Consortium on Health Outcome Measures (ICHAMS). Um, what can we do to better appreciate or measure for value in healthcare? How do you measure value for healthcare? No, how can we better measure for how can we begin to measure for value in healthcare um, since we don't? I mean, we have quality measures. They're mostly, as you know, uh, process well, I, measures, right? We have very yeah. few outcome measures. Yeah, that's right. I think that's exactly correct. Um, you, you you couldn't be more correct. Uh, we there has been a very very strong emphasis uh, on process measures and. Uh, that actually really misses the boat uh, for most uh, consumers, people who are patients. They want to know basically how how effective are mm-hmm. medical providers in improving the medical conditions of people. In other words, have they improved their health? Uh, have they cured the disease? Have they effectively treated the disease? Are the medical outcomes better? Uh, we have got to move away from this process business. Uh, we do too much of it. The medic, um, the Med, MedPAC, uh, the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, has been making this argument, as far as I can remember, that we should be <clears throat> focusing on a smaller number of metrics in process and emphasizing uh, outcomes. Uh, that is where we really need to uh, to make some decisions. Now, in Maryland, for example, what they've tried to do uh, beginning in 2017, uh, the Maryland Healthcare Commission decided to try to bring both the price, uh, the prices of hospital services and the quality metrics together. And the way they did that is to, to give, uh, patients a vision or a ba- basically give them information about not only the price of the medical service, but the degree to which the medical service was delivered to uh, to uh, to exempt to exempt or to avoid medical complications. So avoidable medical complications was another mm-hmm. factor that they used in uh, in 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 revealing uh, the performance of the different hospitals on a price on a pricing basis. That has a lot of promise. Uh, again, that was a Maryland initiative. Uh, certainly, there's no reason why uh, why independent uh, uh, consumer organizations could not do that in the private sector or, for that matter, state governments as well. But I do think that that's a very, very important point. I mean, normally when we talk about value for money, we really mean, you know, getting good, good quality health care at a com- competitive or an affordable price. Mm-hmm. And in most cases today. Um, you know, it's uh, very unclear whether that's happening. I think when Uwe Reinhardt said, uh, it is the price is stupid, he was quite right. But the problem is nobody knows what the prices are. <laughs> if the price was mystery. Yeah, that's the, right. That's the transparency. And, and I should have, I was remiss, I should have noted, as the listeners probably were, the feds have passed price transparency laws, both for providers and insurers over the last few years, and they are slowly regulatory implementing those. Let me get back to MA benchmarks and specific yeah. recommendations you and your colleagues make. So again, MA benchmarks are by county. Um, plans bid against the county benchmark, which is the average per member per year Medicare spending and fee-for-service. 
think yeah. above or below the benchmark. There's pluses and minuses whether you're below or above. Let's let's ignore that whether your bid is above or below. But you're making your authors, your colleagues are making recommendations about MA benchmarking reform. Of course, all in theory. Of course, obviously about trying to make the program more sustainable. Per your mention of the eight, uh, hospital Part A trust fund, uh, the trustees report currently Part A, uh, which is hospital Medicare payment, is bankrupt in five years. So, what what's what's proposed in the, in the book relative to MA benchmarking? Okay, well, as you know, I mean, the benchmark is set by the CMS based, uh, the CMS or the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services makes an estimate of the cost of providing uh, Medicare beneficiaries, the traditional Medicare benefit, the Part A hospitalization and Part B physician benefits. Uh, And they set basically an administrative price for those services. Now, based on the benchmark, the private plans have to submit bids. Um, to CMS uh, that reflect their cost of providing the benefits. The good news uh, in Medicare Advantage is the bids for those benefits come in about 85% lower than the CMS benchmarks on average. That's a very, very big victory, I think, uh, for uh, the private plans. The difficulty is, uh, why should we base, um, you know, why should we tie the Medicare benchmark payment to an administrative pricing system, which is Michael Porter and others point out, uh, does not necessarily reflect, you know, reflect anything that's real. Uh, it may, it's simply, a, it's, a, it's simply an administrative determination. What I have suggested, and I think what my colleagues have suggested, is we do what we do today in the federal employee health benefits program. You submit a bid uh, for uh, a set of, of, uh, of benefits, um, and in this case, it's pretty easy to do it. We know what A and B and C benefits look like, a standardized benefit would look like. And um, whatever is the average bid, uh, what you do is you make that as the foundation uh, for your government payment to the plan. As a result, the plan payment reflects real market conditions. And uh, it's a lot simpler, frankly, than uh, the current system that we have today. And uh, it gives us an opportunity to have a more rational payment to the plan than we have today. And uh, if a person, for example, were to uh, pick a plan uh, that is less expensive uh, than uh, the government payment, then, they, then in, in, in our view, uh, my colleagues share this, <laughs> people should be able to keep 100 uh, percent of the payment. If they do so, what we're talking about then is we're giving people an opportunity to get some real savings and enforcing competitors, both plans and providers, uh, to actually provide the best quality care that they can at the best affordable price. Uh, It seems to me that going in that direction is going to give us real value in healthcare. The current payment system, I don't think, frankly, even, you know, you know, basing the future Medicare, which is increasingly a system of private plans, uh, on a an outdated fee for service uh, program, which is actually shrinking, uh, really is that's not going to be making much sense. I think in the next ten years. Well, there's a technical problem since um, in some counties Medicare Advantage plans dominate the market, that's and correct. their benchmarks are based on fee for service county spending. Well, if you have so few 
county Medicare beneficiaries in Medicare fee-for-service, you can't calculate a statistically valid benchmark because it's a, well, sm- it's a yeah. small end problem. Right, yes. Right. So they're, they're increasingly, you know, MA in some extent will fall victim to its own success as it becomes increasingly dominant in the 3,000-odd uh, counties. Let me let me ask you uh, two other specific. Well, let, me, let me say this too. Sure. I think there's another problem here too, which is unnecessarily complicated. Uh, which is, you know, we're we're basing, you know, we're basing today uh, planned payment based on the county level. Mm-hmm. Actually, that is really, I think, a bigger mistake. We should actually uh, base it on a regional basis, uh, not a county basis. We have 26 MA regions. Medicare Advantage regions in the country right now it would make much would make much more sense, especially since healthcare delivery is becoming increasingly regional. Uh, to base um, the um, the payment on a competitive bid with on a on a regional basis rather than a county basis, certainly would be simpler. Um, be a lot simpler. Yeah, bigger N and yet away from the small N problem. I appreciate you adding that comment. Let me go. Uh, there are two other specific. May, may, may I make one more point? Sure. This idea that I mentioned earlier about basically uh, separating out or basically, uh, you know, cutting the Gordian knot, cutting Medicare Advantage payment uh, based on a market, cutting it away from traditional Medicare administrative pricing uh, is not new with the authors of uh, our book. Um, this idea actually was first raised by President Bill Clinton in 1999. And Clinton made the argument uh, when he submitted his budget uh, to Congress in 1999 or 2000 uh, that basically this is the the current payment system of tying it uh, to uh, traditional Medicare uh, was not only irrational, but also it uh, it was actually costly, more costly for the taxpayers. And um, and he made that point. And uh, my recollection is that the budget analysis uh, from CBO at that time indicated that indeed it would have been that just simply that may, that change itself would have saved the taxpayers a considerable amount of money. But more significantly is that uh, Barack Obama actually recycled uh, President Clinton's proposal uh, afterwards and uh, submitted it with his first budget proposal. So basically, the proposal that we have made in modernizing Medicare is basically a replication of the Clinton-Obama proposal for Medicare payment reform. Uh, Thank you for that. As you know, these ideas over the decades cycle, so I appreciate that clarity. There are two other issues I have to mention, of course, and the first is uh, MA uh, coding. You know, this this has been a big problem for... For a long while, you probably, yes. you probably, I'm sure you read the two-part uh, Rick Gilfillan, Don Burwick, uh, sure 8,000 words, September 21, about this issue. Uh, coding intensity, I think, is the formal phrase MedPAC uses. And there's a coding, coding intensity adjustment every year. Uh, so how, yes. how under a reformed Medicare program do we, we have, say, a better solution for this issue? Oh, I think I think it's I'm very, very glad you raised it, because I think uh, the risk adjustment uh, problem and the coding is a genuine problem Uh, under the current risk adjustment. As you know, the plan's risk criteria include age, sex, institutional or Medicaid status and then health status based on the diagnosis of the Medicare beneficiaries condition Mm -hmm. 
medical condition. The problem with the current adjustment is that it creates a very strong incentive on the part of participating plans to to upcode or secure the highest possible risk uh, score for mm-hmm. the individual best uh, beneficiary and game the system. So it costs us billions of dollars. Uh, what uh, my colleague Ed Heiselmeyer has suggested uh, in the book uh, is actually, uh, you know, kind of an interesting, an interesting idea. His idea is to keep uh, the basic um, uh, risk adjustment information, the, the basic risk adjustment uh, categories of age and sex. Right. And Demographic. So yes, yes, yes. Yeah, the demographics. But as far as health, what he suggests is a retroactive, in other words, instead of a prospective guesswork mm-hmm. about what the health conditions would be, take the guesswork out of it altogether and make a retroactive payment to the plans based on their actual incurring, um, the, their actual incursion of, um, of of higher risk. So a plan that ends up with a disproportionate number of high-cost diabetics, for example, would get at the end of the year, not at the beginning of the year, but would get at the end of the year a payment out of, the, out of a common pool uh, to stabilize the system. So basically, this has been done in other areas of insurance. It has not been done in health insurance. But basically, the retroactive uh, risk adjustment that Heiselmeyer proposes uh, in the book would basically do a much better job of giving you accurate payment, eliminating the gaming, and saving the taxpayers and the beneficiaries a lot of money. I there's no question what uh, Don Berwick has said is to a large extent true. The the, be, the best thing to do though is not not to abolish plan competition or kill the Medicare Advantage program as he suggests, but rather to fix what is clearly broken which is a broken risk adjustment system. Right. So just uh, you're correct per the discussion of the volume, there's a, there's a retrospective risk adjustment discussion and the, and for a risk transfer pool, that's, that's, that's calculated pros, pros, uh, retrospectively. Yes. So if a plan dispo- has disproportionately a higher percent of, of ill patients, uh, there's an adjustment retrospectively made. And in fact, Medicare is doing this to some extent to the uh, relative to for plans that have a disproportionate number of dual eligibles, there is yeah. a, there is a multiplier to account for that because obviously those patients or beneficiaries are going to have higher utilization. Sure. Let yeah. let, let me. I I do want to ask get in this question. Um, I I did find it interesting. There is discussion not not complimentary about ACOs. Uh, in fact, it was was pretty critical. Uh, yeah. But in context, I I do want to ask, there were recommendations that uh, that the Medicare program in some, if you think of it as, as two sides, we have Medicare Advantage on one and formerly MSSP or ACOs on the other, and that they should compete. I've actually written two essays on this. One in 15, I think the 17 one I wrote was in Health Affairs, and that was basically titled, These Plans Should Compete. However, if you look at how these programs are regulated, you know, it's different enrollment, different quality measure, uh, performance benchmarking. Uh, there's, they're not on a level playing field. What, what's your sense of uh, the benefit of having these pl- plans be designed such they can go head to head and compete? Well, I think they have to be designed. To, uh, you're talking about 
ACOs or all plan? I don't know. No, fee for, so fee-for-service competes with Medicare Advantage and fee-for-service, let's define fee-for-service traditional Medicare as accountable care organizations. Yeah. Well, you know, I think, of, uh, let me let me just, you know, this is not my idea, but it, and it's not in the book as far as I know. That one, one suggestion that was made uh, to kind of begin the process is to have the affordable care, uh, the accountable care organization start to compete directly with Medicare Advantage plans. Right. Uh, I think that's a very good idea. I think, and frank, frankly, I, this proposal came out of the American Enterprise Institute a couple of years ago. I think the the champion of this idea, if my memory serves me correctly, is Jim Capretta at mm-hmm. uh, at the American Enterprise right. Institute came up with this idea. I think that could very. I think that's a very positive, uh, very positive suggestion. Um, in fact, you know, maybe before there was a full competition between traditional Medicare and, and Medicare Advantage plans, that maybe that would be a good start. Uh, certainly, it was the it was the intent of uh, the Affordable Care Act and the Obama administration to move away uh, from traditional uh, from the traditional fee for service mm-hmm. and move into a into more uh, into more of a, a, a payment reform system that would reflect uh, value and coordinated care and so on. I think again, I think it's a good direction to go in. In order to create a broader competition, uh, there's certain things that must take place. One is we have suggested in it in the book is to is to basically transform traditional Medicare, the fee for service program from a disjointed set of entitlements, uh, Medicare Part A and Medicare Part B, uh, into a comprehensive, uh, integrated uh, health plan itself. Combine Medicare Part A, a and Medicare B, right? B, uh, provide, uh, you know, uh, reform the cost sharing system, which is extremely complicated. Uh, have a single deductible for uh, for the program, just like any other private health insurance. And um, and uh, and require, uh, as we do in Medicare Advantage, and how to pocket uh, cap so that there's no longer this business of, you know, individuals having to to buy very expensive supplemental coverage uh, to provide uh, protection against the financial devastation of catastrophic illness. That seems to make a lot of sense. Uh if you do that, there's no question. In certain parts of the country, traditional Medicare is going to dominate, regardless uh, of this change. Uh, and in other parts of the country, obviously, you're going to see the domination of private plans. Uh, that's not surprising. Uh, healthcare is really uh, healthcare is really shaped, uh, in many cases, uh, most cases, really by the by the patterns of care delivery at the local uh, mm-hmm. at the local. And so that doesn't change. What does change, of course, is that in a fully transparent uh, environment of price and provider performance and, um, and, and, and a level playing field among uh, the financial, uh, by, by among the, the third-party carriers, uh, you're going to have, I think, a much better outcome than you, than you do under the current status quo. You know, I appreciate uh, the cap. Uh... Traditional does and MA does, and this obviates the whole Medigap problem yes. or reality. So that, that's an important well, uh, point. Yeah, it would because right now, you, if people are going to buy Medigap, well, basically you're talking about instead of paying one premium, we're playing 
two premiums. And in fact, it's almost the same. As I think uh, one of our authors pointed out, you know, I think the average payment now is $167 a month for supplemental coverage. I mean, you know, and it's around $170 a month uh, in Medicare Part B. Uh, My goodness. I mean, is that really necessary? Uh, It it seems that we're spending a lot more money. And of course, this goes back to what Uwe Reinhardt was saying many years ago. We're spending a lot more than we have to Mm -hmm. and a lot more than we should. Now, we have a lot of money to spend, unlike other countries, and we do spend it. But you know, there's no question we can certainly wring out a lot of inefficiencies uh, in the current system. Interesting. We spend a lot because we can afford to, although that's, that's, that's still, what Jerry Anderson told us. <laughs> that's still very depressing. So with that, Bob, Bob yeah. thank you so much. Uh, I think we're at about our time, this overview of the volume. Uh, well done. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to discuss it. So uh, best of luck. Thank you again. Thank you very, very much. It's been great talking with you. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.